Hello and welcome to episode 10 of TGI Crime Day. Thank you for being here. There's not really any important business to attend to today, so let's talk about today's episode. Episode 10 is a pretty cool little milestone, so I decided I wanted to cover a well-known serial killer case. And I was trying to narrow down my choices because, yikes, we have so many choices. Um, I decided to see what Zodiac season we are currently in and choose one from there. So, it's officially Pisces season, you cute little fishies. Don't worry, if you don't care about Zodiac things outside the Zodiac killer, I won't be going that far down into that rabbit hole. Also, don't come for me. I'm not claiming to be an astrology genius. I'm just going off my very basic knowledge here and done some investigoogling, okay? Pisces, you guys had a few heavy hitters, including Richard Ramirez, aka the Night Stalker, Dennis Radar, aka the BTK killer, and one of the most well-known female serial killers, Eileen Warnos. Many fish in this serial killer sea to choose from, but... I decided today to go with the killer clown himself, John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17, 1942, to John Gacy Sr. and Marion Robinson. His parents decided to name him after their favorite actor, John Wayne, which I personally feel like is never a good idea. It's too much pressure. John Sr. was a real piece of crap. Let's just call it what it is. John Sr. was a war veteran and had a very strict men-should-act-like-men rule. Along with his toxic masculinity, John Sr. was also a raging alcoholic and would fly off the handle and get extremely violent. John had two sisters, one older, one younger, and all three of the Gacy kids were terrified of their father. Apparently, there was an incident when the kids were really little. All of them were younger than five years old. I think John's little sister was like three months old when this happened. They were having dinner as a family, and out of nowhere, John Sr. just flew into a rage and hit Marion so hard in the face, she immediately started bleeding everywhere and ran out of the house into the street. Luckily, a neighbor saw her run out and called the police, and at that point, John ran back inside the house, grabbed a handgun, and left. For a few days, Marion took the kids to her sister's house, but they returned home really quickly, and one day, John Sr. just showed back up, and they went back to everything being fine in the way that it was as if nothing happened because, yikes, it was the 60s. When John was only six years old, John Sr. was very drunk and angry, as usual, and he hit John in the face with a broom handle so hard that it knocked him unconscious. As you may know, a lot of serial killers had head injuries as a kid, and John Wayne Gacy actually suffered two pretty major head injuries. One was at the hand of his dad, the other one was when he was 11 years old and he was hit in the head by a wooden swing. They don't make wooden swings anymore, probably because everyone kept getting major head injuries from them, but I remember my great-grandparents had a wooden swing, and first of all, that thing was always full of bees' nests, and second of all, those swings were so heavy and would absolutely knock you on your ass if it hit you in the head. Anyway... John doubled down on the childhood head injuries, and maybe that knocked a few screws loose. Also, fun fact. Okay, not a fun fact. I've got to come up with a better word than fun fact, because that makes me sound like a psycho. Somebody telling a good term that's like a fun fact, but appropriate for true crime. Not so fun fact, I guess. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, also got knocked out by a wooden swing. They both blew up to be serial killers. I said blew up. Grew up to be serial killers. Coincidence? I think not. Along with the physical activity... Along with the physical abuse, Papa Gacy also loved throwing around verbal abuse. John was very close with his mom and sisters, which wasn't surprising because all of them were terrified of John Sr. and had to have each other's backs. But this was a great excuse for John Sr. to call John a sissy and a mama's boy and say that he would probably grow up to be queer. As John got into his teen years, he started to have a lot of health issues, including seizures that were followed by major blackouts. This caused him to miss a lot of school because he was always in and out of the hospital, so he wasn't able to keep up with his schoolwork, which meant he fell behind in school, another reason for his dad to bully him because he had bad grades. And then also, he obviously couldn't play sports or do a lot of physical activity because he had major health issues. Uh, and again, just another excuse for John Sr. to 
treat him like crap and make fun of him and tease him because he wasn't doing enough and being this man's man that John Sr. so heavily insisted he was. Apparently, John was also molested multiple times when he was a kid by one of his dad's friends. This guy was a contractor and would bring John along with him on construction jobs and would sexually abuse him. John was so terrified to tell his dad that he never said anything until he was an adult because he was scared that his dad would be mad at him and blame him for what happened, which just goes to show you what a horrible, messed up household this was that John couldn't go tell his dad about something like that without fear of being blamed himself. And it is really easy to feel bad for a baby John, Ga John Wayne Gacy because of what a horrible childhood he had, but let's not get too sympathetic because people have horrible childhoods and have abusive childhoods and don't grow up to be serial killers, so just keep that in mind as we move forward. In 1960, when John turned 18, his dad bought him a car, which seems like a really nice thing to do, but we all know that John Sr. never did anything nice, so actually this was just another way for him to control John. He would constantly take the keys away from him and hold the car over his head as like a, I gave this to you, you need to be a better person, kind of a gift. John also decided that he wanted to get into politics and proudly joined the Democratic Party. And his dad was, of course, a diehard Republican and called him a traitor for joining the Democratic Party. John actually did really well in politics, and he joined a local Democratic precinct and people absolutely loved him. He got to meet the First Lady at one point, um, further down the road, who was Rosalind Carter, and people said that she just loved him and thought he was so sweet and so charming. He could also hold the attention of a room very easily, which is actually a little bit of that Pisces social confidence showing through, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, John was great at politics, but not so great <laughs> as a person. One day, John decided finally he was going to stand up for himself. And when his dad took away his car keys, he used the secret set of keys that he'd made to drive off into the sunset. John ran away to Las Vegas and got a job working at a mortuary. He really liked working at the mortuary, and from what I understand, he kind of lived there. I guess he slept in a cot outside of the embalming room. And working at a mortuary is great. Like, that's awesome. But sleeping right outside the embalming room might be a little bit much, yikes. Speaking of being a little much, how about the time that John decided to get into a coffin with a body? This body was a 16-year-old boy, yikes. And apparently, John got into the coffin and fondled this corpse, double yikes. People always kind of say that this was when he realized that he was attracted to men or that this was kind of like a sexual awakening thing for him. Here's my thing though, he wasn't attracted to men, I mean maybe he was, but he was attracted to this 16 year old boy, bottom line, he was a pedophile, and also it was necrophilia. So I hate when people talk about this as if this was when he realized that he was bisexual. The thing with the corpse and a lot of what happens later is necrophilia and also pedophilia. So let's not act like this was like a bisexual thing. Anyway, apparently this event was really upsetting to John, which is good because it's yucky. Okay. But then he decided he needed to get out of that mortuary and good job for reacting appropriately to your actions for the first and last time. He called his mom, begged her to let him come home. John Sr. said it was fine. So he headed back to Chicago. Once John got back to Chicago, he decided to roll in business school at the Northwestern Business College. I'm not totally sure how he got in because he never completed high school, but it was the 60s, so I doubt they really looked into it. When he said he graduated high school, they must have believed him. So when he graduated business school in 1963, he got a job at the Nunbush Shoe Company in their management training program. Apparently, John was an incredible salesman and a great manager, and he connected really well with people. His bosses really liked him a lot, so... They eventually promoted him and sent him to join the Springville, Illinois team to be a manager at the store there. And this is where he met and started dating a woman named Marilyn Myers. 
They dated for a few months and then got married in September of 1964. Marilyn's dad was really impressed with John. He was this hardworking, accomplished guy, and so he gave him a new job opportunity. So John's father-in-law owned a bunch of KFC restaurants and gave John three locations to manage in Waterloo, Iowa. Marilyn and John moved to Iowa and had two kids, Michael and Christine. John also joined a local organization called the JCs, which is basically a club that men between 18 and 40 can be part of, where they learn personal development, leadership skills, and do community service and things like that. It kind of sounds like grown-up Boy Scouts to me, but whatever. John loved being part of the JCs, and they put him in a lot of different leadership roles because he was so well-liked. And it seemed like John had a lot going for himself. He was now this businessman, family man, doing the manly man things his dad always wanted him to do. And this was a big deal for John because no matter how awful and crappy his dad was, he always craved that approval. During this time, John was living the good life and his dad called him up to say, Son, sorry for being such a hard ass, but I'm proud of you. And most importantly, it didn't turn out queer. That was a big thing for his dad. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing and editorializing, but of course, that was the gist. What a dick. Moving on. Turns out, John Wayne Gacy was a really good guy at the end. Just kidding, I wish. Uh, of course, he's not a good guy. He was playing the double life while being the cool, fun KFC manager. Great father by day. But by night, he was getting into all kinds of trouble. John would hire very young men and also insisted that his employees called him the Colonel, which I hate. John loved to hang out with the kids who worked for him and even created a little clubhouse situation in his basement. When John was little, his dad was very protective of their basement. It was his man cave, and no one was ever allowed to be down there. John created this same rule at his own house, and John would buy these teenage boys beer. He had a pool table set up and would show them porn down in the basement. Every time I've heard people talk about John Wayne Gacy, I always imagine him being older, like in his 40s, but it just occurred to me that these kids were coming and hanging at his house. It wasn't this weird creeper old guy. It was like their cool boss, so he would have just been in, like, his late 20s. To them, he was probably this cool grown-up who gave them free beer and showed them boobs in his basement. Unfortunately, John wasn't there to be, like, the cool older brother figure. John would get these boys drunk and make them wrestle with him. He also did this thing where he would show them this wrestling move, or he would show them a magic trick where he would handcuff these kids and would molest them, basically, but be like, look, you can get out of these handcuffs, and then would strap them in and not let them out and you know what happens from there so if he would get these kids drunk and kind of try to flirt or make a move and if they were any of these boys were like big enough to kind of like push him off or deny him he would be like okay good job that was just a test of your morals he even went as far as saying that he was doing a science experiment and would pay these teenage boys to perform sexual acts and told them that it was like it's a science thing which i don't that makes no sense in August of 1967, John invited a 15-year-old kid named Donald over to the man cave with the promise to show him porn. He gave this kid a bunch of alcohol and then committed his first actual sexual assault. After this first time, John did this multiple times over the next few months with other teenagers who worked for him at KFC. Eventually, Donald told his dad what was going on and they went to the police. And when they went to arrest John, he claimed that he was being framed and that this kid was telling lies because John and his dad had some kind of a rivalry for a president spot in the JC's organization. Yeah, your rival at grown-up Boy Scouts is totally claiming you attacked his child over a pretend presidency spot, you weirdo. Anyway, John tried to claim that this was a mutual relationship, and the police were like, sorry, no, he's 15. He insisted so hard that he demanded to take a polygraph test, and because he had what I like to call smartest man in the world syndrome, he was convinced that he could just lie on the polygraph, but of course he failed and was indicted on a sodomy charge. 
While waiting for his trial, John paid an 18-year-old kid named Russell, who worked for him at KFC, to attack, to attack Donald to try to scare him out of testifying. Apparently, if the colonel asks, you do it? So Russell grabbed Donald one night and pepper sprayed him and beat him up. Donald bravely went straight to the police station and told them what happened, thank goodness. Russell was then questioned by police and quickly admitted that John paid him to attack Donald. It's in September of 1968, John went through a psych evaluation and was examined by two doctors who diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, but other than that, he was fine and totally mentally competent enough to stand trial. Now that police had their eyes on John, multiple other teenage boys came forward about their own horrifying experiences with him, and of course, he tried to deny all of it. But he was eventually convicted in December of 1968 and sentenced to 10 years. Marilyn immediately filed for divorce. Yes, girl! She got everything in the divorce, including alimony, and John never saw Marilyn or his kids again, and he basically said that they were dead to him, which in my opinion is a blessing for those poor children. There's also this stupid interview with him where they asked him if he ever hurt his own kids, and he basically is like, I would never hurt my own children, I'm not a monster. Okay, buddy. While John was in prison, he was described as a model prisoner. The staff never had issues with him, and of course he sucked up to the authority figures because he's not stupid, he knows how to butter people up. He even got himself a job as a head cook in the prison, and he spent a lot of time trying to befriend and help other prisoners. It's always bothered me that violent criminals and rapists go to prison and then are described as model prisoners. It's like, yeah, because there aren't any teenage boys around for him to attack? Question mark. Anyway, in June of 1969, John had his first parole hearing and was denied early release. Yay! Then on Christmas of that year, John got the news that his father had died from lizard disease, and you'd be surprised by his reaction knowing what we do about his dad, but he was completely distraught. He was sobbing and weeping and threw himself to the floor. There were people that had to, like, detain him and put him in his room, whatever. He was very upset when he wasn't allowed to attend his dad's funeral. The following June in 1970, 18 months into his prison sentence, John had another parole hearing and re was released early with 12 months of parole. 18 months of a 10-year sentence for attacking and raping multiple teenagers. Hi, stop letting violent criminals out early. Like, People sit in jail for years over marijuana charges and other nonviolent crimes that don't get any kind of mercy. And freaking John Wayne Gacy gets to go roam free because he's a good cook and nice to the grown-ups. That's a yikes for me. John was allowed out of prison, but had a couple very loose and clearly not very well monitored rules. He had to go back to Chicago and move in with his mom. And he had to have a 10 p.m. curfew along with regular check-ins from his parole officer. John moved back into mommy's house and got a job as a cook, and not even four months later, John was back on the prowl, of course. On February 12, 1971, John lured a 17-year-old boy from a Greyhound bus stop and sexually assaulted him. This boy went to the police, and obviously this is a parole violation, but the boy didn't show up to testify in court, so the charges were dropped. Easy peasy. Somehow his parole officer didn't know about this accusation, and then eight months later, John completed his parole and his records were sealed. Basically, he just got a clean slate, even though he had literally already attacked another person. It's actually really interesting and horrifying to think that if the prison hadn't made this huge mistake of letting him out early, he wouldn't have been able to go on to commit the murders that he did. I mean, maybe he would have. Now that John was free to do whatever the hell he wanted, he and his mom moved into a new house together in 1972. A little Norman Bates vibes. Not long after moving into this new house with his mother, John committed his first murder on February 3rd, 1972. John was out cruising for young, vulnerable teenagers, and unfortunately, he found one. Timothy McCoy was waiting at a Greyhound bus station when John found him, 
and learned that this 16-year-old Timothy was traveling and had to wait at the bus station all night to catch his bus the next morning. John played this concerned hero and told Timothy he worried about him sleeping at the bus station, which, because he's just such a great guy, he told him he should stay at John's house and then he would bring him back to catch his bus in the morning. Timothy eventually agreed and they went back to John's house and on the way, John like gave him this big sightseeing tour and they were all buddy-buddy. The following morning, according to John, he woke up to see Timothy standing in his bedroom holding a knife. And without thinking, John jumped up, wrestled the knife away from him, and stabbed him multiple times. After he attacked Timothy, he went into the kitchen and saw that there was bacon and eggs being cooked on the stove, two place settings set at the table, and apparently Timothy had been making them both breakfast and just happened to be holding the knife when he went in to tell John, like, hey, I made breakfast. He wasn't trying to attack anyone, but John jumped on him. John also said that this was a very important experience for him, um, ew, because while Timothy was laying there dying, he basically had an orgasm and realized that this was when he had the epiphany that, quote, death was the ultimate thrill. Garbage. I hate him. Then John decided to bury Timothy in the crawl space under his house and went on like nothing happened. Two questions. Where was his mother during all of this? And how did she not smell a dead body in the house? The summer after his first murder, John quickly met and married his second wife, whose name was Carol Hoff. Carol had two young daughters who really looked up to and liked John. Carol actually knew about John's prison sentence and knew why he went to prison, but she went ahead and married him anyway and moved her young daughters into his house. Carol, honey, no! He also started his own construction company called PDM Contractors, and John used this as another excuse to hire teenage boys. His contracting company actually did really well and was very successful, the thing that drives me nuts about John Wayne Gacy is that he could have just not been a murderer. He had options. He created opportunities for himself. People liked him. But below the surface, he was just a monster and couldn't help himself. He was still going along playing the cool guy JC's recruiter, and his community loved him. He was also very helpful to his neighbors and always had people over for barbecues. John also found his new passion, dressing up as a clown. Yep. Yikes. J dressing up as a clown. John would dress up as Pogo the Clown and visit children's hospitals and local charity events. Apparently, there's some kind of rule about how clowns should do their makeup for kids' parties because kids are very sensitive to certain things, and one of the rules is that clown makeup should never have sharp edges. Everything should be very smooth and curved, but not Pogo. John's Pogo the Clown makeup was all angles. He had triangle eyes and a wide, pointy smile. Seriously, yikes. It gives me weird chills to talk about it because... Go, go Google and do some investigating Googling. Look up a picture. Um, fun fact. Okay, seriously, what can I say instead of fun fact? Because this isn't fun at all. I've seen online a few times that John's Pogo the Clown inspired the disgusting and terrifying clown Twisty on American Horror Story. Is that true? Anyway, moving on. Turns out, John was actually recruiting people to the JCs by organizing orgies and hiring sex workers. So I don't know that he was recruiting people so much as he was blackmailing them. Or maybe that was recruiting people. Maybe they were like, this guy's super cool. He gives us alcohol and organizes orgies. So we don't have to organize them ourselves? Question mark. Uh, anyways, the JCs were getting freaky and John was the center of attention and people loved him for organizing all the parties. One day after Carol moved in, she mentioned to John that there was a weird smell in the house. And while Carol was out of town with her kids, John took this as an opportunity to pour cement over Timothy's body that was hidden in the crawl space. So, that answers that question. The house obviously smelled like a dead body. Around January of 1974, John committed his second murder. 
This victim has never been identified, but is believed to have been between 14 and 18 years old. John lured this boy to his house, strangled him, and then his body was buried in John's backyard, near the fire pit where he would constantly host these barbecues and parties. John had everyone around him fooled, even though there were some weird red flags happening. No one seemed to notice. In 1973, John took a young man who worked for his construction company on a work trip to Florida. And the first night they stayed in a hotel room together, and John sexually assaulted this boy. He was so upset that he slept on the beach the rest of the trip, but didn't know what else he could do about it. One day after they got back to Chicago, this boy showed up to John's house, where John was in the front yard and just started beating the crap out of him, which, good for him in my opinion. John's mother-in-law happened to see this and stopped the boy from hitting John anymore. There wasn't really another mention of this incident, but I would love to know what in the world he told his family. Red flag number two happened on Mother's Day of 1985. John and Carol had sex that day, and then John told her that was the last time it would ever happen because he was bisexual. And for whatever reason, Carol was like, okay, cool. They stayed married for a little while, even though John stopped paying any attention to her or her daughters and spent a whole bunch of time hanging out in their garage with teenage boys. There was an incident where either Carol or her sister, I've seen it both ways, but one of these women in John's life saw John bring a boy home. He noticed that someone was watching him and then he quickly le- he quickly left with this boy when he realized that she was there. And she went in and looked at the garage and found that there was a blanket on the ground, a large mirror, red lights, and chains hanging. She didn't think anything of this and just assumed John was cheating and just left it alone. Later that year in October, Carol got out of there and divorced John, but not before he committed another attack and another murder. There was a boy who worked for John whose name was Tony, and one day Tony hurt his foot on a job and asked to have the following day off. This kind of opened a door for John, and he took this as an opportunity to show up at his house unannounced and try to attack him. John handcuffed Tony's hands behind his back, but luckily one of the cuffs was loose enough that he was able to get himself out. John had left the room thinking that Tony wasn't going anywhere because he had a hurt foot and was handcuffed, so he was laying on the floor at this point and was able to get the one cuff off of his arm and then able to get the out of the other one. So he stayed laying on the ground with his hands behind his back so that John wouldn't suspect anything. Tony was a wrestler, luckily for him, and he surprised John by sweep kicking his feet out from under him. I don't know the technical term, this isn't Karate Kid, but he kicked his feet out from under him and that made John fall down and Tony was able to get the cuffs off of himself and put them on John's wrists. They wrestled and fought for a while and finally things calmed down and they both just agreed to pretend this never happened. Hey, always call the police if your boss shows up at your house and tries to handcuff you, okay? Is that a good, can we, can we all agree on that? John's next attack happened on July 29, 1975. A 17-year-old boy named John Butkovich, who worked for John, who worked for John Gacy, this is confusing because they're both named John, I'll make sure to specify who's who. So John Butkovich, who worked for John Gacy, suddenly disappeared. Crazy coincidence, this young man worked for Gacy's construction business, and the last time his parents heard from him, he was on his way over to John Gacy's house to get a paycheck that was long overdue, and then his family never heard from him again. When they called John Wayne Gacy to ask if he'd seen their son, he said that it was just so sad that he was missing but had no idea where he was. He was, of course, lying. John had lured John Butkovich to his garage, handcuffed, and strangled him. He then buried him under the floorboards in his kitchen. Once Carol moved out, John had what he called his cruising years. Basically, he lived alone, and instead of being a normal bachelor and, like, I don't know, eating cereal for dinner and refusing to clean a toilet, he would drive around leering at teenage boys. And I'm not going to go into great detail of each of these murders because it's extremely gruesome and I would basically just be saying the same thing over and over 33 times. 
But John would basically handcuff or bind these boys and young men and then rape and torture them. Most of his victims were strangled or smothered to death, and many of them were found with their own underwear shoved down their throat as a suffocation technique. Um, obviously, the full information is just an investigable away, so I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, but let's get into each of these victims. After a month of being divorced, on April 6, 1976, John abducted an 18-year-old named Daryl Sampson. He murdered him and buried him beneath his kitchen. 15-year-old Rhett Randall was last seen walking home from school on May 14, 1976. His body was found in the crawl space. He died of asphyxiation. Hours after picking up Rhett, John grabbed 14-year-old Sam Stapleton. He was murdered and put into the crawl space along with Rhett. Michael Bonin was 17 years old when John murdered him on June 3, 1976. He was buried in the crawl space with the rope John used to murder him still around his neck. 16-year-old William Carroll, whose friend called him Billy, was murdered on June 13, 1976. An unidentified body believed to be between the ages of 23 and 30 was also found in John's crawl space. He had a pretty prominent identifier because he was missing his top two front teeth and wore a partial denture. Police believe he was murdered between June and August of 1976. At some point in 1976, John had one of the PDM employees take on an extra job. John had gotten tired of digging holes in his crawl space. Poor him. Uh, so he asked David Cram to do it for him. He also told David that he could stay in the spare bedroom of his house, and I have no idea how David didn't find anything or figure out what was going on, but one night when David got to John's house after his regular job, he found John drunk and dressed up in his Pogo the Clown outfit. Yikes. I just... It's so cringy. Okay. John convinced David to have a few drinks with him, and he whipped out those old handcuffs for the magic trick. Double yikes. In my Investigoogling, I read an article that John that said that John had spun David around in circles, uh, like making him dizzy, and then he was growling at him and yelling, I'm going to rape you. Luckily, David was able to wrestle the handcuff key away from John, and he ran into the spare bedroom. For some reason, David stayed in the house after this, uh, but a month after this insanity, John came back for round two and straight up told him, quote, you have no idea who I am. You might as well just give me what I want. David shot him down again and then eventually moved out. Good job, David. Another victim named James Hakinson was unidentified for decades after his body was found. In 2017, he was identified through DNA evidence. He'd run away from home in summer of 1976, and James called his family when he got to Chicago on August 5th, 1976, and then they never heard from him again. It's speculated that he possibly was calling from John Wayne Gacy's house, but there's no, like, specific evidence saying that that's what actually happened. 17-year-old um, Rick Johnson went missing on August 6, 1976, after going to a rock concert. He was supposed to call his mom for a ride home, and she never heard from him. He was buried in the crawl space along with another man who is still unidentified, but was believed to be between 18 and 22 at the time of his death. There was another unidentified male body found that was believed to be between 15 and 24 years old at the time of his death in the fall of 1976. 16-year-old Kenneth Parker and 14-year-old Michael Marino were last seen hanging out together on October 25, 1976. They were both strangled and buried and later identified through dental records. William Bundy, who was 19 years old and another one of John's employees, went missing on October 26, 1976 after telling his parents that he was going to a party. His parents thought he was for sure one of the bodies found in the crawl space, but his remains weren't identified until 2011 when one of his siblings provided DNA. 
Yet another one of John's employees, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, also went missing. He only worked for John for a short time, and if I remember correctly, John or Gregory quit his job with John um, and was at John's house to pick up his final paycheck on December 12, 1976, when he was murdered. Later, Gregory's parents told police that they were suspicious of John, but the police didn't even look into it. John even went as far as saying that Gregory had actually called him and left a message on his answering machine saying that he ran away. First of all, why would this kid call John to tell him that? And second of all, when Gregory's parents were like, yeah, cool, let's uh, hear the message, he told them he'd erased it. This is the third of John's employees who have gone missing, and police are still doing nothing and saying the boys were runaways. Later, of course, police would find Gregory's wallet buried with his body in the crawl space, and they should have just listened to his parents in the first place. A fourth PDM employee went missing on January 20th, 1977. 19-year-old John Sink also went missing and was believed to be a runaway. This just makes me insane. Four of John's employees have now gone missing and just nothing? Not even a quick look around at his house? It's absolutely because the police were in this weird buddy-buddy relationship with John. He was a very respected member of the community. It kind of reminds me of Ed Kemper, right? He was a weirdo, but friendly with police in town, and if anyone suggested, like, hey, that guy's kind of off, they were like, what, Edmund? That dope? No way! Meanwhile, his mom was buried in the backyard, and he was making lamps out of human skin, but anyways, moving on. Another unidentified male was buried in early 1977. He was believed to be around 22 years old. This body was found along with a key fob that had the name Greg on it. 20-year-old John Prestige was visiting friends in Chicago when John lured him back to his house. He was last seen on March 15, 1977. Another unidentified male between the ages of 17 and 22 was murdered and buried, and at some point before his death, this unidentified male had his left clavicle broken. He was also found in the crawlspace. On July 5, 1977, 19-year-old Matthew Bowman was strangled and put under the crawlspace with the rope still around his neck. In August of 1977, a huge clue came forward that should have made the police be like, hey, wait one second, but of course they did nothing. Apparently, when John Gacy murdered John Sink, he sold John Sink's car to another one of his employees, and Michael Rossi, who was the teenager that he sold this car to, one day was caught stealing gas from a gas station, and when officers stopped him to ask what was going on, he told them that he was using this car because basically John had given him this car and he was paying it off by working for John's company. So they were like, yeah, great. And then John told him that he bought the car from John Sink before he ran away because John Sink wanted the cash so that he could run away. And John Gacy, just being such a helpful person, bought the car from him. Again, the police did nothing. They were like, oh, great. Yeah, that makes total sense. I <laughs> just can't. On September 5th, 1977, John kidnapped and murdered an 18-year-old named Robert Gilroy. Robert lived only four, only four blocks away from John, and his dad was a police sergeant for the Chicago Police Department, and yet, still nothing. September 25th, 1977, 19-year-old John Mowry, who was a U.S. Marine and studying to become an accountant, went to John's house to inquire about a job position and was never seen again. October 17, 1977, a 22-year-old University of Minnesota student named Russell Nelson had traveled to Chicago with a friend when John lured him away from a dance club and murdered him. On November 10, 1977, John murdered 16-year-old Robert Winch. Robert was originally from Kalamazoo, Michigan. There, unfortunately, wasn't a lot of info about Robert or what he was doing in Chicago. Tommy Bowling, who was 20 years old and had one child, was murdered on November 18, 1977. He was strangled and buried in the crawlspace. David Talsma was 20 years old and also a U.S. Marine. He was found in the crawlspace and was identified later in 1978. 
1977, John was pretty busy, but he somehow managed to find time to have a quick three-month relationship with a woman who he was briefly engaged to. I don't know if maybe she realized that he was a total creepazoid and left him, but that didn't turn into anything. However, he did find time to reignite an old flame with Carol, his most recent ex-wife. Again, Carol, honey, no! Stop doing that! Okay. Luckily, that did not last long. She got out of there again. In January of 1978, a 19-year-old named Robert Donnelly was walking home one night when John drove past him. John stopped the car and forced Robert in at gunpoint, and John was claiming to be a police officer, which is one of my biggest fears. I hate when people do this. So Robert got in the car because he thought he was literally under arrest. Um, Robert was handcuffed, and John took him back to the house where he raped and tortured him, and Robert said that John choked him until he passed out multiple times and held his head underwater in the bathtub. After the worst night of his life, John drove Robert back to work the next morning and dropped him off like nothing happened. Like, okay, bye, honey. Have a good day at work. What the hell? Robert went straight to the police, um, but they still didn't do anything or believe him. In May of 1978, Jeffrey Rignall, who was 26 years old, was also lured into John's car. Jeffrey was walking back to a bar when John offered him a ride in a joint, and he was like, sweet, free weed, so he hopped in. Um, Jeffrey was then chloroformed and taken back to John's house, where he was also raped and tortured. The next morning, Jeffrey woke up in the park with severe injuries. He was rushed to the hospital, and police questioned him, but didn't believe his story. Idiots! (laughs) Obviously, they didn't take him seriously and were being ignorant and neglectful because this was the 60s, and most likely they were being homophobic because of the certain injuries that he had. Unfortunately, this is something that we see a lot in cases from around this time and even in cases today because it's this weird thing where police do this homophobic thing of saying that they don't want to get involved in the gay community situation as if this is normal or consensual or anything appropriate at all. Um, I'm not going to go off on that tangent because I could yell about it for hours and we're barely scratching the surface on that issue. Um, But just so we're clear, that's a big reason why a lot of these people were not believed because they were like, oh, we don't want to get involved with any of that, you know, homosexuality things because they were rude and ignorant and homophobic. Okay, moving on. So Jeffrey was chloroformed multiple times and he couldn't remember much, but he had little snippets of what had happened during that night with John. He remembered that he'd been picked up in a black Oldsmobile and remembered some of the side streets that they took, and he somehow was able to find this Oldsmobile Oldsmobile, and write down John's license plate. He even went as far as following John home to make sure it was the correct house, and police still didn't believe him. After this incident, um, Jeffrey had major liver damage because of the chloroform effects, uh, and police still just didn't believe him and went with their best friend John. It's just sick. Later, Jeffrey was able to testify in court, which was a very brave thing for him to do. He was able to um, help later in court when John was convicted. Spoiler alert. This piece of crap gets convicted. Okay, moving on. On February 6th, 1978, 19-year-old Robert Kindred was murdered, and he was the last of John's victims to be buried beneath the house. In June 1978, Timothy O'Rourke, who was 20 years old, was murdered, and John had literally run out of space for him to continue hiding bodies underneath his house, so he decided it was time to find a dumping spot for these bodies. Timothy's body was then thrown into the Des Plaines River. Is it Des Plaines or D Plaines? Because I've heard it both ways. I'm going to say Des Plaines. That feels wrong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Des Plaines. I'm making the executive decision. You can please correct me nicely if I'm wrong. Frank, La- Frank Landigan, who was 19, was murdered on November 4th, 1978. His body was also thrown into the river, the Des Plaines River. D Plaines? Des Plaines. 
Okay, moving on. 20-year-old James Mazzara went missing on Thanksgiving Day. He was murdered and thrown into the river as well. Police later connected James to John when some of his personal items were found in John's house. John Wayne Gacy's final victim was Robert Peast. Robert was 15 years old and worked at the local pharmacy. John was talking to Robert at the pharmacy and basically telling him that he could leave his job at the pharmacy to work for John's contracting company and make way better money. And so Robert was like, sounds great, I'm going to come for an interview. Robert was last seen on December 11th, 1978, after leaving work. Multiple witnesses were able to say that they saw John talking to Robert and heard that Robert was going to John's house for this interview. His body, unfortunately, was found later in the river. Luckily, Robert's parents went to the police the night he went missing and told them that he had been last seen heading to John Wayne Gacy's house. And since they were in Des Plaines and not Chicago, these police finally listened to someone and took a look into John. Police called John on December 12th, the next day, and of course he said he had no idea what happened to Robert, but the officer who was put on John's case, whose name was Lieutenant Kozniak, Kozenzak, it's Kozniak from something else, Lieutenant Kozenzak had a son who was Robert's age and actually went to the same school as Robert, and with him being that close to the situation, he did an amazing job and treated it as if it was his own son that had gone missing. So he finally decided to get to the bottom of this piece of crap human, And uh, finally, someone was paying attention, so they were able to put together that multiple boys had gone missing who had ties to John. When they did a background check on John, seriously, finally someone did a background check, they found out that John had served time on those sodomy charges years earlier. You guys, I'm sorry. There are so many... I feel like I'm making all these weird mistakes pronouncing things. I've been talking for a very long time, and it's hard not to have slip-ups when you're talking for an hour. So thank you for being patient. I swear I'm trying my best. Um, okay, so, Lieutenant Kozenzak told John that he needed to go to the police station for questioning, and after taking forever and actually dumping Robert's body in the river on his way to the police station, he finally showed up. Apparently, when the police showed up at John's house to ask him, like, hey, have you seen this kid? Robert's body was actually hidden in his attic, and the police had no idea. Then the police said, hey, you need to come into the station. That's when John left his house dumped the body, and then went into the police station where he, of course, denied everything and said he had no idea what they were talking about. They were luckily able to get a search warrant for John's house, and when they showed up, the neighbors were shocked, of course, that the police were there because, again, for some reason, everybody just loved John so much. When the detectives got into the house, they found way more than they expected. Originally, they just went there to search for clues for Robert, and when they started looking around, they also found that the carpet had a bunch of stains on it that were very suspicious, and there were clothing that were very small. Originally, they just went there to search for clues about Robert, but when they started looking around, they also found that there were stains all over the carpet that seemed suspicious, a lot of clothing that was much too small for John, a bunch of books that centered around pedophilia, they found marijuana, weapons, the handcuffs, and the chains in the garage. They also found a few of the victim's driver's licenses, a class ring, and a receipt from the drugstore Robert worked at from the date he went missing. After they found all of this stuff, police started to have a 24-hour surveillance on John. He didn't even flinch. He didn't care at all and was doing his usual, I'm a good guy, let's be pals thing. John would randomly drive around at all hours of the night just to mess with the cops who were following him. He would take pictures of them from his front porch, and he would even go as far as saying weird things to them like, clowns can get away with murder. Just to be weird, just to throw them off and create clues out of nothing. One day, he even invited the officers to come in for lunch or coffee or something, and one of them went in to use the bathroom and immediately smelled death coming from the vents. 
So face-to-face, John was being super inviting and acting like he was just untouchable. Again, there's that smartest man in the world syndrome coming through. But behind the scenes, John had actually hired a lawyer to try to sue the city of Des Plaines for harassment. His claim was that police were unfairly attacking him and ruining his reputation and taking his personal property. Idiot. Late one night on December 21st, 1978, John drove to his lawyer's office and apparently John was super drunk and just started word vomiting his confession. He told his lawyer everything. Meanwhile, the cops were out in their car trying to figure out what he was doing because they were still following him everywhere. And I just, I love this so much. His lawyer came out to the cops and basically told them, do not let him leave. Like, block his car, don't let him go anywhere. I can't tell you why, because obviously that was his lawyer. But he just told the cops, don't let him leave. He obviously had just confessed to, like, 30 murders. But he couldn't just straight up tell the cops that, so they had to sit there and wait for John to sober up and come out to his car. Eventually, John did sober up and left the poli- or left the lawyer's office. And the police can't really hold him on anything because they didn't hear the confession. So they followed him to see what he would do next. And John drove to a gas station and very obviously and openly sold weed to a teenager who was working at the counter. And apparently he told this kid, quote, the end is near for me. Next, he drove to one of his friend's houses and hugged him and was crying and told him that he'd murdered 30 people. So this is another person he's confessed to. John even went and visited Michael Rossi and David Cram, who were two of his victims that survived, and David called the police immediately and told them that John had also confessed to him about the 30 murders. Next, John went and visited his father's grave and then just kind of drove around aimlessly. At this point, the police knew that they needed to get together another search warrant and arrest John because they worried that he was going to try to kill himself to get out of going to prison. Luckily, they were able to arrest him on selling the weed to that kid at the gas station, so then they were able to hold him while they looked into everything else. The next day, police began their search of John's house, and when they walked in, they found that John had purposely flooded his basement trying to hide evidence. Once they were able to get the basement and crawl space drained, they immediately found an arm bone, and when the police confronted John about this, he decided just to tell them everything. John actually drew out a map of the floor plan of his house and then marked on the map where each body was found. I'll put that drawing on the TGI Crime Day Instagram. It doesn't show anything, like, graphic or anything like that. It's literally just a hand-drawn map of his house with dots marking where the bodies were buried. And even though that isn't necessarily a graphic picture, it just gives me the weirdest chills every time I look at it, like knowing what those dots represent. The police were of course shocked by what they found because up to this point, no one in the Chicago Police Department had taken the accusation seriously, so they had no idea that there were all of these weird connections to John. But at the end of the search, which took about a week, police discovered 29 bodies buried in the walls and the crawl space of the house, They also found four bodies that were thrown in the Des Plaines River, and John said that he threw five bodies into the river, but one of those has never been found, if that's correct. His trial began on February 6, 1980, and John was charged with 33 murders. In court, he pled not guilty and kept trying to place the blame somewhere else. He told his family and friends that he was being framed, that someone else had buried all these bodies in his house, which, yeah, okay. And, of course, his defense team tried to pull out an insanity plea, but multiple experts interviewed him and said he wasn't insane, he was just a total weirdo. Can that just be an official medical term? Uh, He was just a total weirdo. Other experts have said that the abuse from John's dad could have taken a mental toll on him, causing him to become a serial killer and become so violent. And I said it earlier, and I'll say it a thousand more times, a lot of people have horrible, traumatic, abusive childhoods and don't end up murdering anyone, so I don't think that's a good enough excuse for what he did. It took the jury only two hours to deliberate and find him guilty, and he was sentenced to the death penalty. 
John was sent to the Maynard Correctional Facility, where he tried multiple times to appeal his conviction. Thankfully, this time around, they weren't falling for any of his ass-kissing and didn't let him go because he was just a model prisoner. He sat in jail and waited his turn to go through the death penalty. About his denied appeals, John said, quote, If they want to be convinced or brainwashed what they believe, then fine. Go ahead and execute me. But vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, because you executed somebody that didn't commit the crime. First of all, you admitted multiple times what you did and the bodies were literally in your house. Second of all, when murderers do this whole, I'm going to quote biblical BS at you, like, it just makes me insane. In 1980, when he was sentenced, John Wayne Gacy was convicted of more murders than anyone in American history up to that point. Of course, over on the other side of the country, Ted Bundy was on his own horrifying serial killing spree and he would later be convicted of 36 murders. But for a while, John Wayne Gacy had the highest murder count. While John was in prison waiting for death, he got in touch with his artistic side and would sketch, draw, and paint. Apparently being artistic is another Pisces trait, and um, all of you Pisces artists out there, I promise you, your work is way better than John Wayne Gacy's. He painted a lot of self-portraits of himself dressed as Pogo the Clown, their garbage. He also painted a lot of scenery and sunsets, along with multiple pictures of the Seven Dwarves from Snow White, which I just think is so random and weird. There are actually people who collect these paintings, of course. Back in the 80s and 90s, these paintings were being sold between $200 and $20,000. Currently, people are paying between $6,000 and $173. I would never want one of those paintings hanging in my house. They're absolutely cursed. At least cursed, okay? Uh, there has been a lot of controversy over these paintings being sold, uh, which I agree, that's pretty controversial. Apparently, in 2011, a gallery in Vegas put on an art exhibit uh, to show some of these paintings, and people were really offended. The gallery owner tried to put this positive spin on it and say that they were going to donate the proceeds of the gallery showings to the National Center of Victims of Crime, but the organization didn't want anything to do with this money and said, quote, We believe the idea of benefiting from an activity relating to such egregious and violent crimes would be poor taste to the extreme. Out of respect for the victims' families, we have not agreed and would not agree to accept any contribution that comes from the sale of John Wayne Gacy's work, which he did while in prison for tor torturing and murdering young boys and men. Look, we're all obviously true crime creeps, that's what this podcast is for, but personally, I think people buying and selling his art for that much money gets a little bit into that, like, glorifying serial killers thing. I want to know your thoughts on that. Like, keep two of them and put them in a crime museum and then burn the rest, or do you think it's fine that people buy and sell his paintings? I really want to know people's opinions on that, because I think it's so weird. John Wayne Gacy was finally put to death by lethal injection on May 9th, 1994. On the day of his execution, people were outside the prison celebrating in the streets. Meanwhile, he was inside eating his last meal, which consisted of a bucket of KFC chicken, seriously, strawberries, french fries, shrimp, and a Diet Coke. His final words were, kiss my ass. No, John, you kiss the ass of justice, okay? Up until the very end, one of John's sisters loved him very much and would visit him in prison. They actually took a photo together the day of his execution, and I know that she really struggled with this whole thing because... Even though she knew what he did, that was still her brother and she still loved and cared about him, which makes me feel a little bit uncomfy, but I, you never know how you're going to react in these kinds of situations, so I don't want to put too much judgment on her. Um, but after John died, his sister actually wanted an autopsy performed on his brain to see if there was anything there that could explain why he was such a vile person, and that autopsy, of course, came back totally normal. He was just a monster, and that was that. Also, quick correction, I was just listening back, and I think when I was talking about the paintings, I said that they sell between $6,000 and $173. I meant $6,000 and $173,000. That's so much money for these paintings. 
So I just wanted to make that correction really quick. Um, I hope that you liked this episode. I hope you found it interesting. If you did like it, please rate, review, and subscribe. And of course, send me your emails of your own true crime stories. Uh, tell me about the case that got you interested in true crime. Or tell me if you have any creepy things that you collect, like serial killer paintings. I promise I won't judge you. I really want to know. Also, here's a quick little palate cleanser because we talked a lot about like, horrible Pisces. So let me tell you a few famous Pisces who aren't steaming piles of crap. Starting off strong with Alexander Graham Bell, nice. Steve Jobs, very smart. Dr. Seuss, yes, very creative. The lovely and wonderful Ruth Gader Ginsburg, RIP, you're an icon. Um, also someone whose name is Daryl Strawberry. What did he do to make this list? Hold on. Okay, quick investi Google. He's a very well-known baseball player. I'm sorry, I don't know sports. I know true crime, okay? Uh, happy birthday to all of you artistic, compassionate, intelligent Pisces. Thank you for sticking through this tale of John Wayne Gacy. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I will talk to you very soon. Send me those emails. I want to do a listener episode. So send them. Okay, bye.